Our message this morning comes from John chapter 15 and verse 15. These are the words of God. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Our God and Father, you have spoken to us. And we pray, open your word now by the Holy Spirit, that it would come to us powerfully and that it would come to us with sweetness, that we would be transformed to be your faithful servants. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm speaking to you again today, teens, directly to you. And I want to speak to you this morning about friends and friendship. Friends are important to everybody, but as a teenager, you're living in a stage of life when friends, who they are and what they think, will tend to be more important to you and a stronger influence over you than at any other time in your life. So it is very important that you understand friendship the way God intended it to be. And I'm going to preach to you on this in a subsequent sermon as well, but today I really want to focus on the nature of friendship and how God uses it. And the first thing I want you to understand is that friendship is not simply a part of life. But biblically defined, it's not too much to say that friendship really is the sum and substance of life. Friendship, biblically defined, is the goal of every relationship, including your relationship with God. Now that may come as a surprise. And as you think about it, you will begin to see that friend is not necessarily the same thing as pal. I want you to consider the fact that God called Abraham his friend. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8, God speaking, says, You, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Now, the fact that God calls Abraham his friend is significant not only for Abraham as an individual, but also for every believer. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is the father of all believers. Or as he says in Galatians chapter 3, we believers are all the seed, the spiritual children of Abraham. In other words, Abraham is the prototype believer. So what God called Abraham to do, what God accomplished in Abraham's life, and what Abraham comes to be is prototypical for every believer in every age. If God called Abraham a friend, then that is what he is calling each one of us to be. Now you notice in Isaiah 41, 8, God calls Abraham his friend, but he calls Israel his servant. Now, servant is a word that God used over and over of Abraham throughout most of his life. Abraham was the Lord's servant. God bragged on Abraham as his servant. It was only at at the end of his life that God is referring back and calling Abraham his friend. Now, the word servant is a loaded word for us as moderns. The word sounds inherently demeaning to call someone a servant. It suggests to us that you don't think much of the person, that you probably look down upon them, that you don't really care for anything of a relationship with them. Indeed, you may even consider them to be a kind of non-person, 
certainly you would not consider them to be a friend. But we need to set all of that aside when we come to the biblical concept of servant. Servant in the Bible doesn't necessarily carry any of those negative modern connotations. In fact, the Hebrew word for priest simply means servant. A priest is a house servant. Someone who is very close to the master, who serves close to the master's family, who is trusted to serve in the master's house. So a priest is God's house servant, a trusted servant in the household of God. In the ancient Hebrew world, a trusted and beloved servant would often be placed in charge of the entire business affairs of the whole estate, as Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. Abraham himself had such a trusted servant. His name was Eliezer. When it came time for Abraham to find a wife for his son, Isaac, the promised son, the miraculously born son, Abraham sent Eliezer, his servant, to Abraham's home country to find a wife for his son, Isaac. That's how much Eliezer was trusted for his loyalty and his wisdom. So much were such servants trusted and valued that if a man had no children, he would often make that servant his heir so that all that he had would go to him. So you see that that kind of servant, the kind of servant like Eliezer, was really more like a son. Indeed, Abraham, before Isaac was born, was going to leave everything to Eliezer, which shows us even more just how loyal and faithful and wise Eliezer was. You see, until Isaac was born, and remember that Isaac was born very late in Abraham's life, until that point, Eliezer was going to inherit everything Abraham had, which was considerable. But then here comes this miraculously born son, born out of due time, and all of a sudden, he's going to inherit it all. This was Eliezer losing the inheritance. And yet Abraham sends Eliezer to go find Isaac a wife. This is an extraordinarily hearted hearted man here. Such was his faith in God, in God's sovereignty. Such was his loyalty to God and to his masters, Abraham and Isaac. Such was his wisdom that to him, all that mattered was that God be glorified and his masters be blessed. Come what may, God be glorified and his masters be blessed. Now that, young people, is the heart of true friendship. I'm going to come back to that next time and we're really going to develop it. What I want you to see right now, though, is that servant in the Bible is not necessarily a demeaning term. It can also be a term of great honor. God used the term servant to refer to Abraham, to refer to Moses, to refer to David. Three of the most important and beloved figures in the Old Testament. Three men that God regarded as his sons. God also uses the word servant of his only begotten son, his sinless son, Jesus. In one of the most famous prophecies of the Old Testament, found in Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus is called the servant of God. You see, there is nothing inconsistent with Jesus being both son and servant. Indeed, Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. 
And Jesus tells his disciples, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. So this kind of servanthood is what Jesus himself exemplifies, and it is what he tells his disciples to aspire to. This kind of servanthood is the biblical roadmap to both leadership and greatness. Jesus tells his disciples, it is enough, it is sufficient, it is the goal for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. He also tells them, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So we see this is not a typical master-servant relationship as we would think of it. This is one where the goal of the relationship is for the servant to become like the master which is a very different kind of relationship than we normally would suppose. Now, the interesting thing is that that is the exact same goal as that of the parent-child relationship for the child to become like the parent. So Paul tells the Corinthians that they are his spiritual children, for God used Paul to beget them through the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Then he tells them to imitate him as he imitates Christ, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. Paul says in Galatians that a small child, though he is heir of all, in other words, this is a royal child. This is a royal child who's going to inherit a kingdom. Paul says that this royal child, though he is heir of all, is no different than a servant. Now, Paul is talking there about the same thing that Jesus is talking about in our text in John 15, 15, when he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, notice that this again is a very unusual relationship. This kind of servant is supposed to become not only like the master, but a friend of the master. You see here then that the difference between a friend and a servant is not a matter of love because the servant is loved just as much as the friend. Nor is it a matter of authority because the friend is under authority just as much as the servant. In fact, in John 15, 14, the verse before our text, Jesus says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So the love was there when they were servants the authority is there when they have become friends, so love and authority is not the difference. The difference between a servant and a friend is a matter of maturity and trust. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him telling his disciples to do lots of things without explaining why. A lot of the time, the disciples have very little concept of what's really going on. That's because Jesus wants them at that stage to learn to trust him implicitly and to obey him implicitly. At the end of his ministry, which is what we see in John chapter 15, when that foundation of trust and obedience has been laid, Jesus starts bringing the disciples into his council, into this inner circle as it were. And he begins showing them the whys and the wherefores and what the big picture is and what the Father's plan is. That's the difference between a friend and a servant. It's about trust and maturity. This is the path 
that Jesus' disciples walked. It's the same path that Abraham walked. It's the same path that Moses walked. Early on in Moses' life, he had to go through lots of things that he didn't understand. He began, under, he began knowing that he was supposed to be the deliverer. He's supposed to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. And so he slays the Egyptian who is oppressing the Israelite. And he thinks that the people are going to understand that he's the deliverer. They didn't. He tried to bring peace between two Israelites who were fighting one another. They didn't receive it well. They said, oh, are you going to kill us like you did the objection? So Moses has to flee. And now the deliverer who thinks it's time for him to deliver spends the next 40 years in the desert keeping sheep for his father-in-law. These are a lot of things that Moses didn't anticipate. It's a lot of things he didn't understand. But at the end, after God has called Moses back, and at this point, of course, Moses is saying, I'm not qualified. Find somebody else. I'm not qualified to be the deliverer. God says, you're qualified. I made you qualified. Do what I'm telling you to do. After God brings Israel out through Moses and God through his presence in the flyer and the cloud is inhabiting the tabernacle, we're told that God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks to his friend. The difference is not love or authority. It's maturity and trust. There was love when Moses and Abraham were, and the disciples were servants. And there was authority when they had become friends. Because God was still God and Jesus was still Jesus. What they had though that was new was maturity and trust. They had earned trust by learning trust. They had earned trust by learning trust. They grew from what God describes in Isaiah 55, 8. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. That's how we're all born. Moses, Abraham, David, the disciples of Jesus, they grew from that state. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. They grew from that to a point where God's thoughts were their thoughts. And their ways were God's ways because they had been conformed to his ways. That's the definition of maturity. And that's what it means to be God's friend. It doesn't mean equal. It means that God's loves have become your loves. And his hates, what does God hate? He hates seeing everything that he's created good being twisted and perverted. And used for something it's not intended for so that it becomes something ugly. His hates become your hates. And God's ways become your ways. And his will becomes your will. What did Jesus say? Not my will be done, but your will be done. God's wisdom, his way of looking at the world, his skill for life becomes your wisdom. Now this, young people, is God's goal for your relationship with him. And it is God's goal for every relationship in your life. Let's start with the first human relationship that you have, which is your relationship with your parents. What is the goal? 
Well, it's a twofold goal because we've got two people involved in this relationship, both of whom are not God. The first goal in your relationship with your parents is for God's thoughts to become their thoughts and His ways their ways, His loves their loves, His hates their hates. The second goal in that relationship is for you to imitate your parents as they are imitating Christ and thus God's love come to become your loves, which is also your parents' loves, and God's hates, which is your parents' hates, come to be your hates, and understanding and having the wisdom to know the difference in the complexity of life, it becomes your parents' and it becomes yours. It becomes something that you share all together. God's goal is the same for you as it is for your parents, it's just that your parents are further along. God used them to bring you into the world, and God uses them to teach you this path of friendship. And as you become the friend of God, you will become the friend of your parents. That's the way it works. So life is a cascade of budding friendships, all with the same goal, that you grow to become the friend of God, that you grow to be taken into his inner counsel his understanding, embracing his plans, because his loves are your loves, his hates are your hates, his ways, wisdom, and will are yours. Now this budding friendship between a teen and their parents is exactly what you see played out in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is simply a running discussion between a teenager and their parents. You're getting the parent side of the conversation, it's like a phone conversation and you can only hear one side of it. You're hearing the parent side. But this is a running conversation. The foundation of trust and obedience has already been laid. This teenager has earned trust by learning trust. And now their parents can do what Jesus was doing with his disciples at the end of his ministry. And that is discuss everything with them. All the whys and wherefores, all the ways, will, and wisdom of God. Now teens... That is what's supposed to be going on right now between you and your parents. What's supposed to be going on is not what you see in the typical American home. It's not what we are told is normal, where there really is no relationship at all between the teen and the parents. And what relationship there is is antagonistic. And so there's no real conversation at all other than arguments. What's supposed to be going on between you and your parents right now is what we see in the book of Proverbs, conversations about everything. And that's only possible if you want it. Because a conversation takes two people. It takes a two-way street. It has to be wanted by both sides. So the question is for you teens, what is going on with you and your parents right now? If you're into friends, and I know you are, If you want to be into friendship, that you have to start with your first friendship and your first friends, humanly speaking, and that's your parents. If you don't get that right, you're not going to get anything else right when it comes to friends and friendship. So what's going on with you and your parents? Is it the conversation that we see in the book of Proverbs where everything is open and honest and healthy and wholesome? Or is it a distant, closed, secretive relationship And this is where I want to now bring it back to friends that are your peers. Because if things with you at home are distant and closed and secretive and guilty, 
There can be various causes for that, but one of the most common causes is that you have developed a close friendship with a peer or a group of peers that does not reflect God's purpose for friendship in your life. It does not because the relationship is based on a different set of loves than God's loves. It's based on a different set of hates than God's hates and a different set of ideas about life so that God's ways and will and wisdom are not of interest to you or your friend. What that kind of relationship does to you teens is drive a stake in your heart. It splits you as a person. You see, when your close friendship with peers are based on loving what God loves and hating what God hates and knowing the difference, then every relationship in your life lines up. Because your duty in each relationship lines up with your duty in every relationship. And your goal in each relationship lines up with your goal in every relationship. Your hopes in your relationship with your close friends as peers lines up with your hopes in every other relationship. And your happiness in each relationship lines up with your happiness in every other relationship. You see, there's no conflicting lines. Life is like Christ's tunic. It's seamless. There's no seams. Now, you may experience conflict within a particular relationship. There may be trials and difficulties and challenges you have to work through with a particular person in God's providence. But there's no conflict with the fact of the relationship or the nature of the relationship because you're walking in every relationship in light of your pursued friendship with God. When you have an unhealthy friendship, one that is not consistent with your pursued friendship with God, that unhealthy relationship by its very nature in existence as well as through its dynamics will produce a rupture in your life. Things will not line up anymore. What is needed and required and expected in that unhealthy relationship, in that unhealthy friendship, will conflict with every single proper relationship in your life. You will have to compartmentalize your life. You will have to compartmentalize your heart and your affections and your desires and your hopes and indeed your very identity. You will have to lead a double life. You will have to be one person over here and another person over there. You will have to lie all the time. And that is a tremendously heavy burden to carry. You will have to lie to yourself. You will have to lie to others that you love. And you will have to lie to God himself, although you will not be fooling him. Now, I want to ask you teens, honestly, do you think that that could ever be a, a recipe for happiness or healthiness? You know the answer to that question. So what's wrong? What's the problem? Is it all the other relationships in your life, the ones that line up, the ones with your parents and the ones with your pastor and your elders? 
and those who are walking with God? Is it all the relationships that line up with one another? Are they the problem? Or is it that relationship with a peer or a group of peers that's out of sync with all that? Again, you know the answer. When it comes, teens, to your close relationship with peers, you want your friendships to line up with life as God has made it and to line up with all the other relationships that God has called you to. You want friendships that are healthy and helpful and open and honest because there's nothing to hide. Now, that doesn't mean that you go blathering around with every uh, detail about your friends. What it means is that the fact and the nature and the dynamics of the relationship, you don't need to hide because there's no need to hide them. It's open and honest. Teens, a good friendship, a good friendship with a peer will help you with all of your other relationships. That's the test. Does that relationship help you and enhance all those other relationships? Or does it not? A good friendship with a true friend who is a peer will help your relationship with God. It will help your relationship with your parents. It will help your relationship with your teachers, your pastor, your elders. It will help your relationship with your siblings. It will help your relationship with your church friends. And right on down the line, your boss, your co-workers. A good friendship will make you a healthier person because it will make you more peaceful and less conflicted. So let me ask you, run down through your friendships with your peers. It may be one person that's particularly close. It may be a little group. Is that relationship or those relationships, do they make you more peaceful? Or do they make you more conflicted? Do those relationships make you more joyful? Because a, good, a true friendship will. Or do they make you less joyful? Do those relationships make you less into yourself or more into yourself? Because the more into yourself you get, the more unhappy you're going to be. That is the sure recipe for misery. And a true and a good friendship, will, even with a peer, is going to make you less into yourself. Do those relationships make you more open and less closed? Or do they make you more closed and more secretive? A relationship, a good relationship with a, with a peer who is a true friend will make you a more what you see is what you get kind of a person. You're transparent. It'll pull you away from the kind of a person who's one person over here and another person over here, or maybe a person with a dozen different faces, different faces that you need to put on in different contexts so that you can be accepted and so forth. What effect does the relationship have on you? Does your friendship with peers, does it make you more concerned with what's really important in life and less concerned with superficial stuff? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not using the word superficial contemptuously. I'm not saying that all of life is just big theological questions. Little things in life are important too. Yes, how you dress is important. How you look is important. All of the, that's all under the sovereignty of God. But the modern obsession with all of these things is not healthy at all. A healthy friendship with a peer will make you more concerned with what God thinks 
and your parents think and other godly people think and less concerned with the whims of what some insecure, self-centered peers think. So what's the effect of the relationship? Does it make you relax, more at peace, more healthy, more able to be concerned with things that are really important? Or is it making you more and more insecure, more and more having to make sure you're up to the moment on what the latest thing is with this person or with this group? Now, that's miserable. That's exhausting. Do you really want to go through life that way? Well, you won't because as hard as it is for you to believe, teens, as you move forward in life, even when you get into your 20s and certainly into your 30s and so forth, There will be no other time when you praise such a desperate focus and emphasis on peer acceptance and friendship the way you do right now. Now, the very fact, and I'm talking about even if you weren't Christians, that's true. If you weren't Christians, that's true. The very fact that you would begin to see all of those things with a broader perspective and you yourself even apart from being a Christian would move out of the obsessive type nature that tends to govern peer-related friendships uh, in, in the teenage years in our modern society, doesn't that, isn't that a tip-off that some of these things may not be as healthy? What a bad friendship does, what an unhealthy friendship does with a peer is it drives a stake in your heart, like I said. It splits you. When you walk with God, on the other hand, everything in your life lines up. You're going to have challenges and trials. God promises you that. But he also promises you that they are tailor-made by God specifically for you to mature you, to grow you up into being his friend. You have his promise. If you walk with God, there's going to be a fundamental peace in your life, even in the midst of trials. There's going to be a fundamental healthiness to your life, even in the midst of trials. There's going to be a fundamental wholeness and wholesomeness to your life and openness to your life. And that's what you want. If you have an unhealthy relationship or friendship with a peer, quite simply, you need to get out of it. You're not loving them. You're not loving God. You're not loving yourself. It's not what God wants for you. So you need to choose life. Choose health. Choose openness. Choose honesty. Choose wholesomeness. You want it to be said of you, when all is said and done, that you were the friend of God. And you don't want that to be reserved for the latter stages of your life. Because that's supposed to start in your teen years. Your teen years is when you're moving into the friendship stage, or should be. When now, you're not talking about or wrestling with fundamental issues of life, like basic trust and obedience. Rather, now, God is opening everything up to you. Your parents are opening everything up to you, showing you things. Your parents can say to you, hey, come here, what do you think about this? What do you think I should do here? And you have a running conversation of letting your parents know this is what's going on with school. You know, this thing happened. What do you think about that, Dad? What do you think about that, Mom? That's what's going on. This is how you understand what God's loves and what his hate of perversion looks like in a complex world. 
you have to talk about it and learn of it. This is what it means to be the friend of God. Are you in the process right now of becoming the friend of God? That's the question I put to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.